0: Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we speak with a Vancouver area woman who came across a very unexpected creature in a vegetable patch recently, an African spurred tortoise, the third largest species of tortoise in the world, found usually in the Sahara Desert. So what was it doing in suburban Vancouver? And what did she do to help find it some help and a new home? We know that ultra-processed foods such as sugary drinks, ready-made meals, chips, and so on can be pretty bad for your health. But are they actually addictive, something that needs special labeling? New research suggests maybe they are. We continue our series on collections and collectors with a look at a time-honored one, stamps and coins, probably the ones that more than a few of us started out with way back when. But what about now that so few people use stamps and coins? We ask one of Canada's foremost experts about it. The Prime Minister is now weighing in on Alberta's plans to abandon the Canada pension plan in favour of a provincial one. Justin Trudeau is saying it would cause undeniable harm to the nest eggs of many Canadians who paid into it. We get reaction to that from Edmonton. But first, we shift to Quebec, where that province's government, worried about its polling numbers, is targeting its three English language universities. How? By doubling the tuition that out-of-province students and international students will have to pay to attend them. And then they're going to keep that money to pour it into the province's French universities. They say it's to protect the French language, but it's really just politics. Can it be reversed? Well, from exotic pets to pet peeves, and this is one of mine. Um, After spending a quarter century covering politics in one way or another, it's when politicians target minority populations to score political points with their base. Now, it certainly isn't uncommon. We see it happen quite a bit. And I grew up in Quebec and trust me, it happens there often. Really, you know, targeting people, but just for political reasons. Um, That's what's at play again now. The latest bad idea from the province's government uh, is to target this time, English language universities. Now, I went to both McGill and Concordia, the two big ones in Montreal. There's bishops in the eastern townships. Those are the three English language universities in the province. Now, part of the joy of those schools was that they attract students from right across the country and around the world as well. A great place to share ideas from kids right across Canada. It really is. Um, There may be far fewer of them out of province students, that is, in the near future. Last week, Quebec announced that they would be doubling tuition for out-of-province students, undergraduate students, only at those three English language universities, from about $8,500 to about $1,700 a year for students out-of-province. They're also increasing fees for international students as well. Here's Higher Education Minister Pascal Derry explaining why.
1: This new t- tarification model will inevitably help us to reinforce and to um, to have a certain progression in the number of uh, francophone students in our francophone network.
0: Right. Uh, this is a big problem, specifically for McGill. About twenty percent of their students are out a province, thirty percent international, ten and twenty-two percent at Concordia, thirty and fifteen at Bishop. So they're an important part of the student body, and the schools won't be keeping that extra money. The province is going to take that money. As Pascal Deleri, Adairi alluded to, are they going to take that money and give it to French universities instead. Graham Carr is the president and vice chancellor of Concordia. Zero conversation between the government and the universities about the potential impact of this, financially, reputationally. Very, very disappointing. Yeah. Joining me now is Danielle Bellon. He's director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Uh, Danielle, welcome, welcome back. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for the invitation. Always glad to be with you.
0: This has been an interesting one because uh, universities have sort of been left out of the fray when it, when it comes to a lot of these language issues. McGill, Concordia, bishops have just kind of gone on their merry way over many, many years through the 70s, 80s, the times I was there and so on. But all of a sudden, they're the target now. They're the target of what has been this concerted effort to reinforce through any means possible the predominance of French in the province. What do they want to do with, with Quebec English-speaking universities?
2: Yeah. So, first of all, there is a historical context. And actually, uh, uh, Anglophone universities, especially McGill, um, you know, they have been uh, the target uh, uh, of uh, nationalist politicians in the past. You know, in 1969, there was a major protest uh, in uh, in Montreal <laughs> that was called uh, Operation McGill-Francais, Operation right. uh, mcgill French And uh, that was in March 1969, and there was a big march of Francophone students, and they they protested to request the provincial government to turn McGill into a Francophone university. Um, and at the time, you know, there they, they was only one Francophone university in Montreal, University of Montreal. It was hard to get in. And so, uh, you know, McGill was, uh, uh, on, on you know, a target. And, it's and on the radar. Then, yes. On the radar, yes. Yep. And since then, it's quite... Uh, you know, it's quite common in the Francophone media. People outside of Quebec who don't read the Francophone media in Quebec don't don't know that. But it's quite common to criticize McGill or to say, oh, McGill is too rich. McGill, you know, has all these international students, out-of-province students who pay more money and then may pay more tuition, and then they are rich. And then Francophone universities have complained about that, say the system is not fair. And, of course, François Legault, uh, who has a strong Francophone base who has only two seats on the island of Montreal, who doesn't really care about what Anglophones think because, you know, he doesn't need them electorally. Then, considering the fact that, uh, you know, the the CAQ is losing ground in the polls, they lost a by-election against uh, the the Parti Québécois uh, in Jean Talon, a riding of the Quebec City region uh, just earlier this month. And now they decided to find a new target uh, in terms of protecting French language and also regaining support among francophones um, and especially people who might vote for the parti québécois and right. the idea is let 's go after anglophone universities they don 't say that explicitly, but that 's my understanding let 's say that we are protecting French and increase attrition uh, for out of province students, most of whom are. Uh, Anglophone, and then take this money and give it to Francophone universities who struggle to attract out-of-province students, way more students proportionally out-of-province students or international students than McGill or even Concordia. And so that's the story, really. It's a political story, but it's rooted in an historical context. I mean, the Anglophone universities in Quebec have been on and off the target of, you know, uh, I would say nationalist rhetoric in Quebec. And and recently, it's about funding, it's about money, saying they have too much money compared to Francophone universities, and also that they bring Anglophones to Montreal, who then either leave or stay, but keep speaking mostly in English, so they have become a threat. French. That's at least the, what the rhetoric is.
0: That's, that's the party line. I, I mean, the impact on the schools themselves, because obviously I went to McGill and Concordia. I grew up in Montreal, but I, I you know, the presence of out-of-province students at both those schools and at Bishops is such an integral part of, of the community there. It is really, it makes them Canadian institutions. And it feels like, well, obviously the impact on this is going to be significant if it happens, because they're doubling tuition fees for out-of-province students.
2: That's right. So if you look at McGill, McGill is, you know, the most international uh, university in Quebec and the most, uh, you know, Canadian uh, university in Quebec, as you alluded to. I mean, we have here at McGill uh, about, you know, 30 percent of international students and 22 percent of uh, out-of-province Uh, uh, students, which means that Quebecers are a minority. It's only 47%. It's quite exceptional in Canada to have a province where fewer uh, to have a big university where fewer than 50% of the students are from from that province. So uh, there is a lot to lose for McGill, but also for Concordia and bishops. uh, Because when you jack up the tuition like that for other province students from $9,000 to $17,000 over, you just do that over one year. It's a dramatic increase. And that will deter some out of province students to come to Montreal. And actually people are criticizing this, people in the business sector. The mayor of Montreal said, Hey, now, you know, out of province students, people from other provinces, instead of coming to Montreal, they will they will go to Toronto instead. She said that, right? right? She mentioned Toronto. And you know the rivalry, the old rivalry between Montreal and Toronto, mm-hmm. when a Francophone says, you know, this will help Toronto against Montreal, you know, this is it means that That's they, they really don't like it. <laughs> right. No. And the I Chamber mean, of it, Commerce it, it, is against it, and the Liberal Party of Quebec is against it. Uh, other people in the business sector, uh, some academics have came out, uh, uh, Francophones even, saying, you know, it's important to you know that we welcome uh, out of province students but at the same time um you know now mcgill concordia and bishops are in a very difficult situation and i'm not sure exactly what they will offer because might it might only be the beginning i mean i suspect knowing the caq and based on what i've heard mm. is that this might only be the first phase and there are other things that they could do for example impose a french language test on foreign students right uh uh, in term, as part of the admission process, they could do things like that, which would be even more damaging right. for, uh, uh, you know, McGill, Concordia and Bishop. So I think it will hurt more, perhaps even Bishops and Concordia than McGill, because McGill has this prestige and some people might be willing to pay more money to come to McGill. It's less the case for Concordia, for example. Um, but at the same time, the problem with this, too, is that if they were charging more and the money was going to McGill, Concordia and Bishops, yeah, you they're know, taking
0: the money. They're, take, they're The taking province is taking money the money. money
2: and yeah. giving it to Francophone universities. So as Tom Mulcair wrote in an op-ed, you know, it's kind of transforming this into a wedge issue, right? And you pit Anglophone universities against Francophone universities. And once again, in a way, Anglophones against Francophones. And it's something that the CQ has done in the past, and they are still doing it uh, regarding this specific file. It's a small school strategy, um, and that's part of their you know, that's part of their strategy to fight back against the PQ that's rising in the poll and saying we don't do enough to protect French language, including in higher education.
0: Daniel, um, Danielle, when you look at this, I mean, clearly it's politics, right? I mean, I was listening to Francois de talk about the, protecting the French language the other day. I, I know I've met Francois de Gaulle, I've interviewed Francois de The man doesn't have an ideological bone in his body. It's all survival, as far as I can tell. Uh, can, this be re- can there be enough pressure put on uh, CAC to get them, the government, to get them to turn on this one, do you think?
3: First
2: of all, the CAQ, uh, uh, as you said, uh, François Legault is very pragmatic. I mean, that's the way to, you know, uh, uh, to say that he doesn't really have an ideology, right? And 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 uh, he follows the polls and, and so forth. Uh, and also he runs this party, right? He's the founder of the party. He's the first and ever leader of this party. So um, L'état, I L'État, c'est lui,
0: right? L'État, c'est lui. <laughs> exactly.
2: Like with the 14, we get those. Yes. So um, L'État, c'est moi. So mm-hmm. I think- There's possibility, maybe not a pure reversal, but changing things like they have done that with the third link in terms of transportation policy. They have that during the pandemic. They reverse course quite a few times. So I do think that there's possibility at least that they, you know, put some uh, water in their wine, as we say in French. And maybe, you know, there are things that, frankly, Concordia, McGill and Bishops could do. They could say. Uh, give us more of the money that you're, you you want to take away from us uh, as part of this nutrition policy, mm. and we'll use this money to offer more French French language courses to out of province and, and international students. We will actually maybe in some cases even mandate French language courses to people who already know don't know French when they come to McGill, right? And that will address the problem of saying, well, we have people who come to Montreal they don't speak French and then they you know they will leave after they are done or they will stay but they won't really integrate into the province. Because if you don't speak any French or very little French in Quebec nowadays, even in Montreal, it's not actually good for you from an economic standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to be perfectly bilingual, but you have to know some French um, to work in, in, in most areas of the economy. So I think that the universities could have a counter-attack a campaign and say, look, okay, we understand the message. We need to do more to help French. And why not also making these universities partners with the government in terms of what they call francisation, that is, you know, making uh, anglophones and and allophones and people who come from other parts of the country and other provinces, making them fluent in French. And that will address a lot of the concerns that francophones have. But politically, it might not help the CAQ, right? Because as I said, it's mainly, to me, it's a political move. It's not good public policy. You know, that is sure. Uh, It's not... Economic standpoint, it's not good for these universities. It's not good to bring talent, attract talent to the province. You know, to, especially bad for Montreal, of course, because Bishop is you know it's a small university and Eastern Township, but Concordia and McGill are really located downtown Montreal, and they are very important for Montreal, and and, and not just for francophones. I mean, we have about twenty percent of francophone students at McGill. Some of them come from France to Belgium uh, or Belgium and so forth, and the French have a special. Belgium, I think, to a special deal for attrition. Um, and they pay less. But, you know, many of them are Francophones from Quebec uh, and, and McGill could have, have more Francophones students from Quebec. They could, you know, uh, they could certainly, I think, go to see Francois Legault and say, OK, we understand the message. This is too primitive from our perspective. This endanger, it endangers us, but also Montreal, frankly, the economy and so forth. And so why are we not trying to maybe, you know, uh, find a strategy together to make sure that students who come to Quebec, they, they they learn French when they graduate from McGill, they have at least some, you know, knowledge of French, Right. They might not be purely fluent. And that might be a compromise. In the end, it might be good for these students to come to Quebec because they will, uh, you know, because I know some students from McGill who are here and they don't learn French at all, and they leave. And you know, in Montreal. We talk about the neighborhood near McGill. You know, as the ghetto, right? The, yes. Because it's a ghetto because it's so anglophone. And you think sometimes you're you're not. Uh, you know, people tell me, oh, it's not really Montreal or even even Canada. It's like so international and so this and that. And you don't hear French much when you walk around that neighborhood. So. I think that McGill, Concordia and, uh, uh, you know, Bishops, especially that now they are facing this very bad policy that will hurt them. They could they should come up with a counter proposal and maybe the government will be able to talk. And as I said, moderate or soften the edges of that new policy uh, and give at least more of this money back to them, these universities, maybe so that they promote French on their campus, among other things.
0: Yeah, I, I never understand why protecting the French language for a party like uh, Coalition Avenir Québec always involves shooting yourself in the foot. Because this purely, i mean—to to target your most prestigious universities, regardless of, the, regardless of the language, and also sort of, yeah, it just feels like, feels like bad policy. Danielle, thank you so much.
2: You're most welcome. Take care. <laughs>
0: Well, it's that time of the week when we chat with a journalist uh, in the center of a big story or big stories about the work they're doing. And tonight we'll head to Alberta, where the battle over the province's plan to abandon the Canada Pension Plan and to create the so called Alberta pension plan, or APP, is heating up just as a consultation process there is beginning. The prime minister has decided to weigh in. He sent an open letter to Premier Daniel Smith saying Alberta's exit would expose millions of Canadians, the rest of us, in other words, except for Quebecers, to greater risk on their nest egg pensions. Um, Trudeau said he's instructed his cabinet and officials to do everything possible to ensure the CPP remains intact, warning that an Alberta exit would cause undeniable harm. Uh, You may remember what happened here. There was a report that had been commissioned a while back that was released uh, not long ago that found that Alberta would be entitled to about 53% of the CPP's pool by 2027 if it decided to quit and go it alone. Now, a lot of people said, why would one province be entitled to more than half the money in that fund when it belongs to all of us, right? Uh, Premier Daniel Smith says Alberta would be eligible to receive $334 billion. And today, she explained again why she thinks this is a good idea.
2: So we've over-contributed. Those contributions have compounded over time. And based on their calculation, they believe that that over-contribution compounding comes to 53% of the assets.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, the numbers, come on really let's let's go back to when it was created and then how did that compound and you know what's the nest egg and you know obviously alberta has a younger population so they're taking less out i mean there's a lot of different stuff going on here and as i said growing up in quebec you can play with these numbers however you want to make them come out the way you want to make them sound uh, the cpp meantime estimates alberta's owed about 16 percent, uh, nowhere near 53 percent. smith also says the effects would not be on- onerous to those across the country outside of quebec who remain in the plan
1: the Prime Minister is dramatically
3: overstating the issue. There'll
0: be some impact, yes. I mean, this is kind of a political gift for Danielle Smith, I would think, because she'd much rather be fighting Justin Trudeau than actually having to explain why this is, this is a good idea. Uh, from the outset, the opposition NDP leader, Rachel Notley, has been saying this is, in fact, a terrible idea. Have a listen.
1: Today, Danielle Smith took the first step in her long-term plan to steal your pension. She did it by releasing a report riddled with fake numbers. And she now plans to spend your money campaigning to convince you it's a good idea.
0: Well, whatever you think at the beginning of that sentence, uh, the end of it's true. She is spending your money, at least Albertan's taxpayer, taxpayer money, to make you think it's a good idea. Uh, joining me now is Dave Breckenridge. He's editor of the Edmonton Journal, Edmonton Sun, and host of the 10.3 podcast. Dave, welcome back. Glad to be here, Ben. This is one of those stories you're thinking, hmm, I guess Albertans will figure this out because there are some consultations already and people were giving uh, the panel that's been set up for this uh, piece of their mind. And then all of a sudden, here comes the Prime Minister weighing in and you could just feel Daniel Smith going, oh, this is so much better. This is so much better. I get to fight with Justin Trudeau, not actually explain why this is a good idea.
4: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you have to think that maybe somewhere someone in the Prime Minister's office was saying, Are you sure really you need to weigh in here that, you know, the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board can speak for themselves? I I suppose at some point the prime minister was going to be asked about it or the prime minister was going to have to make a statement on it because I'm sure people are wondering what the federal government is going to do. Should Albertans vote in a referendum to say, yeah, we want to leave the CPP? And then so what happens next? However, as you stated, Daniel Smith is probably like just kind of gleefully tapping her fingers together just thinking to herself well i you know i'm really lucky here because as soon as Justin Trudeau is is so unpopular in alberta that i can't imagine that many even people who are against the pension plan idea hear him come out and say oh yeah no this is i'm going to stand up for alberta's pension i'm going <laughs> to for the canada pension plan i'm not going to sit idly by and let this ruinous plan go ahead. I can hear a lot of Albertans saying, Oh well, yeah, sure. Sure, Justin. What do you know? <laughs> like Yeah. It it just it doesn't seem like the the kind of thing that that is gonna land, you know, soundly here in Alberta. But you know, as I said, politics being what they are, the Prime Minister at some point was going to have to make a statement. But you have to think that this is the kind of this is the fight that Danielle Smith wants. This is the fight the U C P wants. We want to fight against Ottawa for Alberta's Having a pension plan, we want to fight to get rid of the RCMP for local policing. We want to take, you know, any number of of measures that the provincial government wants to take to limit the amount of Ottawa control in Alberta. And Smith is just happy to fight with the prime minister.
0: Yeah. And what if the concept, I mean, I, I actually worked at a pension, <laughs> pension fund, so I have some understanding of how all this works. And I'll tell you, it'll be a very cold day in hell when the CPP lets go of 53% of its assets under management to give to one province. It's it's going to be expensive, drawn out, and a, I, I predict disaster. Um, now, it, that's not to say that Alberta, like Quebec, can't you know possibly manage their own pension fund that's not true but a lot will depend on how much money they get to walk away with to set it up right and i think that's where and and then you then you know again growing up in quebec i just know when the system is being gamed because i had it gamed on us for decades right so the moment that they came on said this is a great idea and we're going to sell it to you with your money i thought well if that's the case then your argument backing it up probably isn't that good. It's probably – if you have to sell it this hard with your with taxpayer money uh, and then avoid public consultations, it's because it's a terrible idea. And you know it's a terrible idea.
4: Yeah, and I, I, I'm curious if the political machinations behind the scene were, were just – or the calculation was, well, we need to throw a bone to the people – in our base who want to have a fight against Ottawa who want, you know, who, who are big believers in Alberta autonomy or worse, uh, or separation. And, and so we need to, to throw them a bone here. So we'll go through with this process that a lot of people don't want, and it won't even get to a referendum because the feedback in the so called engagement sessions will be so terrible, or even if it does get to a referendum, it won't exactly pass, but they're really giving us the hard sell. Which leads me to believe that there's a lot of there's a lot of people within government who think this is a great idea and this LifeWorks report that suggested that Alberta's owed fifty three percent of the fund. And even if that math is correct, I can't see the federal government turning around and saying, Here you go. Here's yeah. here's a quarter here's a third here's of a 334 dollars, billion, billion
0: dollars. <laughs> Yeah. Good luck. Go,
4: yeah, no. go ahead. It's you know, so even if the referendum were to go ahead. I, I I know we're a couple years out. I know that you know, this is going to come to come to a head right around the, the next provincial election, if my math is correct
0: twenty twenty seven ish. Yeah, I guess or before yeah, that. Yeah, twenty twenty seven. It's all
4: come to a head around that, and and maybe by that point enough there will be enough groundswell of support. But right now, you have these engagement sessions that people are upset they're not in person, and then even on the engagement session, I, my colleague at the Calgary Herald, Don Braid, was referring to to one guy named doug who was really upset that you know the the province the ucp didn't campaign on this in the election and and suggested that anyone who was raising the specter that they were going to touch Albertans' pensions was fear-mongering and it's not going to happen and then they get elected and and then they enter you know they come back and say yeah we're going to you know push ahead with the possible referendum here and and this guy basically called them out uh, and said, if you expect me to leave anything from this current government, you know what, I've got some beautiful, beautiful land that will be coming available out by Fort Hills when Suncor is done with it. And he was cut off by the moderator. <laughs> so, I mean, so yeah, sure, they're having they're having t- phone town halls, but I get the sense that people who are critical of the government aren't getting too much say, or people that are harshly critical of the government aren't getting a chance to, to voice their concerns. And then beyond that, there's been criticism. I know the CPPIB... Um, Came out with a letter, not just Justin Trudeau, but the, the head of the investment board wrote an open letter to to former provincial treasurer Jim Dinning, who's running these engagement sessions, to criticize the engagement process, criticize the province's survey, to suggest that you can't even say there's not a question asking whether you want an Alberta pension plan in this online survey, and that leads to a lack of transparency or credibility in the results. So it seems to be just a you know a strangely botched process from the get go here.
0: Yeah, it's been interesting. I, someone the other day, I can't remember who it is. Someone on someone on Twitter had posted something about the New Zealand flag uh, referendum, and it was funny because they were trying to make this seem as of some kind of argument in favor of what the how the process is working. And I looked it up. Uh, the New Zealand flag uh, situation. They had two referendums, of course, two referendums, One on all the options, and then one new flag versus old flag. Old flag one. They also had twenty five in person public consultation sessions over a two-month period on a flag. And here we are talking about billions of dollars, billions of dollars in the nest egg that Canadians have all paid into for decades in a fund that is well-managed has been, is sustainable and has invested very well. Uh, and you know, where does that money come from? Like, are you going to tear down the sea? You can't just take out $334 billion out of a pension fund and have it survive. It's sort of an existential crisis. And I just get the feeling sometimes when you talk to people, I mean, I interviewed Daniel Smith, they just have no clue for them. It's just like, Oh, another fight with Ottawa, another fight, you know, this is about us. And you think this is just, it's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. I, I mean, there, I
4: know that there are arguments out there that Alberta should probably go on its own. You know, we have a younger population and we make a lot, we have higher than average incomes. And so surely with that math on, on our side, we could have a better pension plan for Albertans, by Albertans. But I think where people, a lot of people get hung up is this, you know, what, what happens to the CPP in its absence, in Alberta's absence and, and how much money does it walk away with? And the, and people get hung up on that, that $334 billion number, even if it's less, like, I'm not going to suggest that I'm necessarily in support of it, but, but I can understand the argument by some, that you know, we're younger, we make more money, as I said. And so maybe it's the, it's the best way to go about it. But the question is, how much money do you start with? And that can have a big impact on, on how cheap the fund is and what our benefits would be.
0: Yeah. And do you take that? And what do you invest that money in, right? I mean, part of the issue here, too, is that Quebec and the model is sort of the Quebec pension plan, which, you know, CDPQ, which runs that, has sort of a nationalist agenda, but is very transparent about it. But in Alberta, I mean, you don't really want to politicize your pension plan. You just don't. Uh, it's not a good idea to politicize your pension plan. And the fear I think here too, is that what does the UCP want to do with this? If it's in charge, what does it want to do with this money? Right. What does it want to do with your pension money?
4: Well, I, you know, I think it's a little bit, a little bit of fear mongering on the part of the NDP that are suggesting that Daniel Smith wants to steal people's pension. (laughs) True enough. True enough. I don't think we're talking talking about theft here, but I mean, it is a fair question to ask, you know, who's going to be calling the shots on where the money is invested. I know the, the, provincial government doesn't necessarily have the best track record when it comes to some of these questions you know if you look at our provincial investment fund aimco it does decently but it doesn't do as well as the cpp and we invested money in a pipeline that didn't get built and all that so there are there are questions here to be here at commonwealth in edmonton uh, the 20th anniversary of the original outdoor game um, super excited to be a part of it. Obviously, the, the, the Edmonton uh, Calgary rivalry uh, is, is is special, and uh, to play on this field and on this rink, uh, you know, in this uh, big venue, to be be very fun.
0: Ah, oh, you recognize that voice, Connor McDavid. You know the Battle of Alberta is always, no matter where you live in this country, it's one of the great hockey rivalries. And of course, they're playing the Heritage Classic uh, at the end of the month at Commonwealth Stadium. Dave Breckenridge is the editor of the Edmonton Sun and Edmonton Journal, uh, host of the Ten Three podcast. This feels like kind of a big deal. October seems a bit early, but Edmonton, uh, you know, you get it gets pretty cold in in memory in, in Edmonton in October.
4: Well, yeah, I was I was around. Uh, I was working at your sister station, six thirty, Ched, in two thousand three, in November, uh, when the first Heritage Classic game happened, and it was cold. November wasn't can get minus pretty darn 30? cold. was it, and wasn't it
0: minus it. thirty or something with the wind chill for that one? I remember watching it. it was yeah, so I was cold. in the
4: cozy confines of the Ched studio, so I, I was I was nice and toasty. But I know that you know the the broadcast team and and even the players and and fans were were freezing their butts off out there. So late October is probably a, a safe bet for a heritage classic in, in, in Edmonton, but yeah, pretty exciting, pretty big. The NHL is trickling out little details of information uh, about the game. And, and they announced they, they unveiled kind of what the stadium is going to look like today. It looks pretty, you know, they the, you know, the rink doesn't match the size of the football field. So they have to dress it up a little bit. They have what essentially what amounts to a, a huge poster, on the ice of of uh, Calgary Flames player and an Edmonton Oilers player and an oiled derrick and pump jack and some pipes. It looks pretty cool. I, I'm does, not doing it justice on, on the air, but, it, it, you know, it's, it, it's tough. You the can't hype up see it. The,
0: the jerseys look yeah. pretty cool, too. They've come up with a couple of uh, sort of tribute jerseys for the night. there. I like those. They look pretty good to me. Yeah, I don't know much about the the, the Flames one. I, I believe
4: that the Oilers one is supposed to pay tribute to the Edmonton Mercury's, who Canadian sports fans may know was a was a Olympic gold medal winning hockey team back in the the fifties, if I'm not mistaken. But you know, people may on the text line may come back and say Dave's an idiot. Um, but yeah, it's a you know some pretty vintage looks people were criticizing the Oilers going with brown gloves and brown pants, which I know was kind of a th- uh, even further throwback look. Uh, to the really olden days of hockey. But, you know, it's nice to have something to be excited about in Edmonton after the Oilers got off to a pretty awful start to start their their season with two losses to your Vancouver Canucks there.
0: That's right. And there hasn't been a whole lot to celebrate at Commonwealth Stadium this year either with that huge uh, Eskimo, Eskimos, Elks, Elks, I forgot, Elks uh, losing streak over, uh, over many, many months. So perhaps you can knock that. I think the Canadians won that first Heritage Classic back in 2003, though.
4: Yes, that's true. They did. You know, I, maybe the Oilers would have been happy to have some of their alumni on on their team. They had some of the big guns out, uh, and still, you know, in 2003, Wayne Gretzky was was you know still in pretty decent shape. Maybe he could have shaken up the the Canadians a little bit. But this time will be a, a great battle. You'll have Connor McDavid. You'll have Nazem Kadri. You'll have
1: yeah.
0: Leon Drysital. It's it's going to be fantastic hockey. It's always a good one coming up on October 20th. I ever owned an exotic pet, Dave? Have you ever had a strange pet?
4: No, I had a hamster, no. I had a cat and a dog as, as kids, and now I have a dog. I, I mean, my, my beagle is now is kind of strange, but not in the in the way you're referring, no. <laughs>
0: not in no. an exotic way. And we were asking about names because we always say that people have these really exotic pets and they have the most common names. Like, as uh, as Talia, the technical rooster, was saying, one of her colleagues was saying earlier today that she had a tortoise called Jimmy. And you're like, really? That's an odd name for a tortoise.
4: How good our, our dog growing up was named Cindy, but after Cindy Lauper because we let our sister name the dog.
0: Ah, that's always the way it is. Well, yeah. Dave, as always, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Not a problem,
1: Ben.
3: Burg even took my stamp collection. You had a stamp collection. <laughs>
5: stamp collection! <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, listen, aside from a clump of hockey cards that I carried around with me, like they were sacred at a young age, the first thing I ever laid eyes on that would qualify as a collection was a stamp collection because many of us had them as kids. Some kids had older siblings that had really cool collections. And back in the pre-internet days, it was one of the ways that you learned about faraway places. The little images on the stamps would open up a whole world for you beyond what you knew in your own backyard. My uncle had some very old German currency from the 20s, and he explained kind of hyperinflation to me when I was about nine. He said you would have needed a wheelbarrow full of these notes to buy a loaf of bread back in 1920s Berlin and so there's so much that you learn from sort of coins and stamps uh, and collecting in stones and, camp, and, uh, and camps stamps and currency was never just about the subjects uh, it was really about where they came from listen I can't remember the last time I put a stamp on something although I do notice when I go to the post office that the stamp collections that they're selling are always really cool and of course we use fewer and fewer coins these days the pennies gone other countries have dumped smaller coins as well banknotes. The dollar bill, the two, the thousand, they're gone. Um, but don't count coins and stamps out just yet. You'll remember Canada's post, Help for Ukraine stamp issued in the summer of 2022, its first fundraising stamp. Uh, was a big success and there were several others similar around the world brian grant duff was part of that help for ukraine stamp effort he's collected coins and stamps for more than 50 years now he's worked in the business as well in vancouver and toronto for more than four decades he's the owner of vancouver's all nations stamp and coin collectibles and he joins me now brian thanks so much good evening ben so tell me about when you first started because I I think back to those early stamp collections. There was always someone who had a older brother or sister who had an amazing stamp collection with things from all over the world. Um and they really do back then I really felt like they transported you to different places in, in just with just a little a little picture on a stamp.
6: And it's the way that countries represent themselves. So it's not only the art, but it's the country trying to put its best foot forward around the world. I started as a bedridden hospital patient. My grandmother would come and visit me every day in VGH and uh, give me comic books. Well, of course, the nurses, once I'd read the comic books, passed them on to the other less fortunate children. And my grandmother, who was uh, on a grandmother budget, decided that maybe she should start giving me stamps and coins and said I was hooked. I recovered. I had a paper route. All my money went to... Uh, stamps and coins, and I quietly collected all through elementary and high school. There was a group of us who kind of played with them, and yes, there was always an older brother who had a a better collection and perhaps uh, made some one-sided trades with you, but uh, that was the start. and I was very fortunate coming out of high school to start working for a local auction house, and so uh, they trained me in their retail stamp outlets, and uh, before Expo 86 came to Vancouver, I was working in both Eaton's and the Bay coin and stamp departments, literally yes. by changing my name badge. Can you imagine if you <laughs> walked across the street to a competitor radio yeah. station? People yeah. would see me and say, hey, weren't you just over there? Oh, no. but uh, <laughs> And eventually I was sent to Toronto where I ran a shop and some auctions. And uh, somehow I've survived it all. And I'm still going at 41st and Dunbar here in Vancouver. And I run a weekly online auction. And coming out of COVID, that's been just wonderful for me, because if you don't have a website these days, you're pretty much dead in our business. And mm-hmm. so I was, I was able to switch from uh, uh, an auction where people would come and attend it live to an auction where people can participate from everywhere. It's not uh, it's not on Zoom or anything like that yet. But uh, certainly the the change in the stamp world, of course, came about two dozen years ago when eBay and PayPal came along. And that was a revolution that dragged uh, the sort of Edwardian stamp and coin world into the 21st century a little bit ahead of time. And what happened was everything that you could only get from a stamp show or a stamp dealer or a stamp auction all of a sudden became available on eBay. And right. you could you could pay for it using PayPal. So uh, there wasn't a the big hassle of going to the post office and buying a money order or whatever people used to do or mailing a check and waiting for it to clear. So that was a big change but you I mean, you I mean, must I mean, have loved
0: it. you must have must have been part of the fun of it though for you back back when when you would spot something or find something i mean the hunt was part of the fun in the collecting yeah, i i suspect it, it was for me in a
6: way but but it still is so you yeah. know a guy who's looking for something or a gal who's looking for something will maybe be looking for it in ebay europe rather than ebay canada uh, mm-hmm. trying to find something that's misdescribed or the seller doesn't know what they have and so on and uh, that's sometimes why people are looking at my options, because I don't have a buyer's premium, and I don't charge for credit card usage. So right. uh, there's that. All those that. other things yes,
0: that, you, that add up,
6: you, yeah. You, you've got to learn and grow with it. I think that the future is now in coins and stamps. I actually think there's never been a better time to be a really? stock and coin collector
0: I, I was going to ask you that in just a second because yeah, so, <laughs> I, was, so, I, mean, I, I was just I, curious. Though I, 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 then, you, then you caught me off guard with working at both the Bay and Eaton's at the same time. Which, if, if for listeners who remember that those, I mean that would be like playing, playing for the Habs and the Leafs at the same time. It was that's a, <laughs> that's a great story. Um, yeah. Do you have any? Do you, do you when you think back to, to some of your favorites? You, I mean, I remember one of the things that really struck me when I had my little stamp collection was it taught me about things that I didn't understand, like the Commonwealth. I would ask, "Well, I have this stamp from Jamaica. Why does?" It have the queen on it right and you'd sort of ask questions of people about why things were the way they were um and it kind of taught you about the way the world was well
6: there's no question and and the other thing is if your phone's broken or the internet is off you've got this thing that you can still hold in your hand and play with and and you know study and learn from and you can form a collection however you want And, and that's the other thing that's great about the internet is anyone who collected things with turtles on them, now discovered that they could do stamps and coins and banknotes with turtles on them as well as collecting ceramic turtles or whatever they did before. Right?
0: Yeah. No, it's interesting that way. Uh, tell me about some of the ones, I mean, what are people looking for these days when they, when they come in to see you? Because, again, I, I get the impression it's just become, it used to be that everyone could collect, right? It was just one of those things. It was common. You'd get a letter from abroad. You'd cut out the stamp. And if you knew someone with a stamp collection, like your grandma did, they would give it to the person with the stamp collection. These days, it just seems like a lot of stamps are targeted at collectors.
6: Yeah, I think that's true to some degree. But I think with a a generation of collectors retiring and passing their stuff on, if you're at all interested in stamps or coins, and you're younger or of any age, you just tell people and they're going to give you a bunch of free stuff. And, and you're probably going to be looking through that for things that might have value as well. And certainly learning from it and researching it. And, and you can do that you know, in many ways more easily than you ever could online. So we've got that great tool to use, but of course so much stuff in stamps and coins comes from the 19th century where not all that information is online. Generally speaking in stamps, Old is better than new, mm-hmm. mint is better than used, and sets are better than odds and sods. If someone spent money on it as a collection back in the day, it's more likely to have value than stuff that people saved off mail or stuff that people bought from the uh, mint or the post office, which may anyone could buy. So uh, right. that, that's where, that's where uh, higher-end material generally trades at auction.
0: Uh, Brian, I mean, it begs, it always begs the question now, and you were mentioning it earlier already, that you know, now that we don't use stamps the way we used to, and now that we don't use coins the way that we used to, or at least not as often, that that may change the nature of collecting them. Uh, but you seem to think that, that, no, that in fact, this is kind of a really interesting time to be collecting stamps and coins.
6: Well, the key to the timing is all the best material ever is coming on the market for the first time in many years. So basically all the people who've been collecting from the 1930s and on are passing on their collections or their families are. So everything you've ever hoped to own, you now can. And it doesn't have to be expensive, uh, although it can be. For coins, you want to look for small gold and large silver coins. You always want to try and get the best quality you can afford. Collect what you like. Collect for fun, not for profit. And I mean, how many people doubled down on their hobbies? Sports card collecting got a lot of love during COVID. Bird watching got a lot of love during COVID. Stamp and coin collecting is something you can do where you can hold on to the material. And it was made by governments to show off their art and represent their countries rather than companies making things more for collectors like sports cards are or to sell bubble gum. Not that there's anything wrong with sports card collecting. It actually kind of goes hand in hand with snapping coin collecting in many ways.
0: Yeah. Now, tell me about some of your – because you've seen – so, I mean, I can't imagine the number of stamps and coins that have passed your gaze over the many, 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 many years. But there must be a few that you've you've held on to that are your absolute favorites. They may not be the most valuable, but they're certainly the most precious, precious to you.
6: All coin dealers love the 1797 Cartwheel Tuppence. It's a giant English coin It doesn't have a denomination on it. I don't think it's just a size thing. It literally is heavy and chunky and sits in the palm of your hand and very much represents the classical ideal carrying forward from Greece and Rome. And for once, George III did something right and then made a wonderful single-year type coin. So that's always a favorite. And uh, in stamps, I think everyone loves Canada's first stamp, the Threepenny Beaver, designed by Sanford Fleming, the guy who invented Standard Time. And, of course, the world's first stamp is Britain's Penny Black from 1840. Queen Victoria's image on it, almost nothing else. And the Brits still only put the, the current monarch's head on their stamps. They never put their country name on their stamps just because they started it all.
0: Yeah, I, I'm just looking at the, at the at the at the at the at the beaver stamp. That's a great looking one, and the coin is the coin. You're right, King George, only known as for the madness of. That's a great looking coin from the tuppence from way back yeah. from way back when. That's a
6: and those, and, and those are what, couple to watch
0: for. Yes, absolutely. I guess I guess those don't come up very often, mind you. I, I wouldn't think
6: uh, the threepenny beavers. You can buy a used example for as little as fifty bucks if you buy the okay. second issue. And the panty black, we probably have one in our auction every single week. And they're going to bring somewhere in the $100 more or less range, depending on the condition. So they don't have to be expensive, but uh, to own the first of anything is pretty special.
0: Yeah, no doubt. We were just talking about Sanford Fleming actually uh, on Friday because we were talking about a new book on the Canadian Pacific Railway and his name pops up again. So there he is in stamp history as well. Uh, so where to from now do you think? I mean, obviously dealers such as yourselves have found your ways to, to go online and that like many collecting uh, collectibles and collectors has really opened a whole world for people to look into and buy and trade and so on. I guess that's really yeah, the so future. It's going to be online, right?
6: It really is, sadly, because it's, it's a little known fact that much of stamp collecting is actually this social aspect of it you think of some lonely person in a gibbet you know pouring over their stamps but actually people love to assemble and bid in an auction and talk amongst themselves or go to a stamp club and uh, follow a presentation and get to know each other when they have that common bond and uh, what's happening of course is zoom has been a, a wonderful thing for the hobby and All those guys who used to exhibit their collections at the shows may still do that, but they also give Zoom talks. And, of course, likewise, uh, YouTube videos are big. And so what I suggest people do is try and find their local stamp club or coin club or paper money collecting club, all of which exist here in Vancouver and elsewhere. And uh, if you can't physically be at it, you can probably join one and participate in Zoom meetings. And likewise, you get to know a dealer so that you can trust what you're buying and know that the price is fair and know that if you're not happy with something, there's recourse. And uh, the dealer organizations in Canada for stamps are the Canadian Stamp Dealers Association. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for coins are the Canadian Association of Numismatic Dealers. They both right. have websites, so you should be able to chase those down and learn where your local dealer is.
0: I had to look that up today, numismatic. That was a, that's a good word. I'd forgotten it. I, 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 Philatelli, I, I remembered numismatic. I did not. Um, Brian Grant Duff, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it.
6: A pleasure speaking with you. Happy to help anyone who wants to buy, sell, broker, or auction stamps, coins, and collectibles. All the best, Indeed. Ben. I come to Israel with a single message. You're not alone. You are not alone. As long as the United States stands and we will stand forever, we will not let you ever be alone.
0: Joe Biden uh, made that visit today to what is essentially a a war zone, right? I mean, he was in Tel Aviv, uh, but he was in uh, Israel for about seven, eight hours today. And as the first time a US president has made a visit to Israel at a time of war. So it was a historic occasion. Uh, He's back now already, but he was there to show support for the country following the Hamas attacks 12 days ago now that left some 1400 people dead, including six Canadians, perhaps more, many more injured, still an estimated 200 hostages or so held. Here's what Biden had to say about his purpose.
6: Hamas committed atrocities that recall the worst ravages of ISIS, unleashing pure, unadulterated evil upon the world. There's no rationalizing it, no excusing it.
0: He also came with some expectations, cautioning that Israeli leaders must have a clear plan for achieving its wartime object- objectives. And he also said that Israel had, aggr- Israel had agreed to allow humanitarian assistance to begin flowing into Gaza from Egypt, with the understanding it would be subject to inspections and that it should go to civilians and not Hamas. Egypt apparently has now agreed to that plan, although uh, there are some logistic issues uh, on the on the border between egypt and gaza just getting that stuff uh supplied essentially getting it out of there Uh, but part of his mission on this trip had already gone off the rails even before he landed following that explosion at a hospital in gaza on tuesday that local health authorities claim killed about 470 people uh israel and today the us including president biden said that israel is not to blame for what happened, um, instead pointing to an errant rocket fired from Gaza by a militant group there, Uh, but the anger that the explosion caused yesterday and the conclusions that many had reached long before any investigations uh, were done. Uh, saw a summit planned with Arab leaders and a man Jordan canceled late yesterday as anger spilled onto the streets of many capitals, many cities in the Middle East and North Africa. So what did Biden's visit achieve, even though part of it wasn't able to, be, to go ahead? And what lies ahead now? Randa Slim is director of the Conflict Resolution and Track Two Dialogues program at the Middle East Institute, and she's a non-resident fellow at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced and International Studies. And she joins me now. Uh, Randa, thank you.
7: Thank you, Ben. Good to be with you.
0: It was interesting to see uh, President Biden back. I mean, uh, we remember him in Kiev uh, not that long ago, in Jerusalem, well, in Tel Aviv today. Uh, what did you make of the of the visit? He's gone already. It was quick, but it was certainly symbolic.
7: It was very much symbolic uh, in terms of lending support uh, to Israel. He stuck to the line of unwavering support for Israel. Although this time we saw in the remarks he gave to the press uh, basically, you know, pushing Israel to start asking the hard questions about the day after, how can they think about uh, the operation without, uh, not necessarily through the revenge prism. Uh, But still, I mean, in the rest of the region, uh, most of the commentary is uh, very much disappointment. uh, With an American president who is seen as uh, unable and unwilling, in fact, unwilling, to put distance between the United States and Israel, especially as Israel is getting ready to launch this ground offensive.
0: When you looked, I mean, clearly what happened in Gaza yesterday uh, was a derailed part of his visit. There was meant to be that meeting in Amman with leaders, with Mahmoud Abbas, amongst others. And that didn't happen. And that appeared, I mean, one would think that would have taken away from his trip period, really.
7: Look, I think it was the wrong decision, in fact, for the Arab leaders not to meet with the president. you don't have many opportunities to have face time with the American president. And if you have this opportunity, you should take it. Uh, What happened in Gaza definitely forced the hands of the president Sisi, King Abdullah of Jordan, as well as the Palestinian president. And uh, given the public anger. It was going to be very hard for them to be seen, especially in a public setting with the American president, especially, especially after the American president saying what he said today in in, in Jerusalem.
0: Right. I, I, and, and this is a pressure. This is the dynamics that always come to play when in these sorts of things. One thinks of it, you know, it's it's multi-level diplomacy and politics. And clearly what we saw even in North Africa, Turkey, uh, the Middle East, the anger on the street, seems to me to be a factor that, that hadn't really played out just yet, and now all of a sudden it's going to be a factor, particularly for the leaders that you've mentioned.
7: Definitely, it's going to be a factor. I mean, Egypt and Jordan are going are the two countries that are going to be most affected by how this ground offensive happens and by what the Israeli government, you know, uh, what is their agenda. There is a sincere, serious concerns in both countries that the objective is not only to eradicate Hamas in Gaza, but also to push Gazans out of the Gaza Strip into the Sinai Desert, and then to push, eventually, Palestinians from the West Bank into Jordan. And that's why you are seeing the king of Jordan saying, you know, if this were to happen, this is a declaration of war as far as Jordan is concerned. So uh, these are, you know, serious concerns, and any kind of outflow of palestinians from gaza or the west bank is going to hit both countries uh, uh you know egypt on one hand and jordan very hard
0: it was interesting to see today that one of President Biden's demands, clearly as he went in, I'm not sure how how scripted this was in advance, probably. Uh, but the idea of trying to push Israel to at least allow humanitarian aid from Egypt into Gaza, because uh, clearly they've said it won't be coming in from Israel until the hostages are released. Uh, but allowing at least for for humanitarian aid that's piling up at the Rafah crossing to to come into Gaza at last. I mean, that seems to be the agreement. I don't know if it will proceed as planned or not.
7: Yes, because, I mean, there have been now some problems with that. Partly, there is no staff on the Gaza side to handle this crossing of the aid. So that's one problem. The second, there is shelling, you know, Israeli shelling on on, on that side as well. So that also, you know, is going to hamper any kind of humanitarian Basically, trucks carrying humanitarian aid coming through. And Egypt really is not in a mood to trust the Israelis now or to work with the Israelis. And the Americans, you know, we have seen Secretary Blinken go into a meeting with the Israelis, uh, with the Israeli Security Cabinet for hours coming out saying a plan has been agreed to be put in place to allow humanitarian aid to come across from Egypt. And yet we get immediately thereafter statements from uh, some members of the Israeli security cabinet saying, no, I mean, the only aid, the only thing that should cross into Gaza are millions, millions of tons of explosive. I mean, there is definitely, it looks like there is disagreement inside the Israeli security cabinet about this passage of humanitarian aid from Egypt into, into Gaza. And that does not put the United States And the american president into a good position i mean if they cannot deliver this if they cannot get israel to agree on this then what can we expect from the united states to do when it comes to basically getting israel to abide by international humanitarian law as it conducts its ground offensive in Gaza?
0: for someone who's been a long-time observer of this and i think this what you're pointing out is the limitations that all what we would consider to be big powers have over this particular situation. I don't think that I mean, Iran, perhaps, but it's it's hard to tell right now who who can control with with the facts on the ground. But you're a longtime observer of this. Where do you think this? I mean, this is a. Possible question. But where do you think this is headed? I mean, it feels like it's different from the past, that we've seen these flare ups in the past and they've and they've eventually found a way they've settled down. This one feels like it's in a far greater danger of spreading regionally, of luring other people in that very few big powers seem to be able to control what's happening. It feels like it's spinning a bit. And that's not a good thing when it comes to the Middle East.
7: I, I totally agree with you. If you notice the pace of escalation, you know, it has really picked up. There is not an adult in this room, you know. I mean, you expect the United States to play this role, but with this unwavering, no strings attached support that the president has been giving to Israel publicly, he, he and and the government are not willing to play this role. And so without an adult in this room, you know, I think we are heading toward a tragedy if we are not already in one The closest this is going to get, in my opinion, to the 1973 war. In that case, it was Israel fighting two state actors. This time, you are going to have Israel fight against an amalgam of state actors, sub-state actors like Hezbollah, non-state actors like Hamas, like the Hashd Shabi, the Iraqi militias in Iraq. So it's going to be a wider scale, a wider front with non-state actors, and that is harder to control.
0: Randa Slim, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there's still a lot of anger on the streets in many Arab capitals uh, today over that explosion at a hospital in Gaza yesterday that that uh, local officials say killed about 470 people. There's been a lot of talk about who was responsible for it, Israel and the U.S. Now say, of course, that Israel was not. President Biden reiterated that on his visit to Israel today, instead blaming a rocket launch from inside Gaza by a militant group there. Uh, it's, the investigations have not been able to go forward. Right now, there's a lot of speculation about what exactly could have happened. But we thought we'd ask Mark uh, Garlasco. He's a former Pentagon intelligence analyst. He also served as a war crimes investigator for the UN in Libya, Syria, and Vas- in, uh, Afghanistan and elsewhere. He's a military advisor at Pax, a Dutch NGO now, and he joins me from New York. Mark, thank you.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Tell me a bit about, about your work in the past because you have you have quite quite the resume when it comes to investigating conflict and civilians.
3: Yeah, so I started my career in the Pentagon, uh, basically doing targeting. Uh, So doing target recommendations for places like the war in Iraq in 2003. And from that, I took my knowledge and understanding of targeting and also working on bomb damage assessment teams for the military. And then I went to the United Nation and NGOs to try to apply that on the ground. And i Basically, been doing investigations for the last twenty years. He's on uh, three war crimes teams for the UN, uh, Afghanistan, Libya, and Syria. Wow. And now I'm working for uh, an NGO where we try to uh, protect civilians in conflict. Just to to sort of lay the groundwork, you've
0: been critical of the number of bombs that Israel has been dropping on Gaza over the past twelve days or so.
3: Yeah, you know, I think there's a, a lot of concern, not not just looking at the entirety of the the twelve days, but specifically on Israel's point in the beginning of this conflict, right? So they put out a a number of 6,000 bombs in the first six days. When we look at the U.S. war in Afghanistan, for example, you're looking at an average of around 5,000 bombs annually. So the Israelis in six days dropped more than what the U.S. was on average dropping in Afghanistan in a year. And Afghanistan is the size of Texas and, you know, Gaza is the size of like Newark, New Jersey. So very small area, a lot of weapons. And so just an extreme amount of care needs to be taken by Israel when they're operating in Gaza. Uh,
0: The the big one, though, the big one that's been discussed over the last 24 hours is the Al-Ali hospital in Gaza City. And looking at that, you think, at least according to your experience and what you've seen, you don't think that Israel was responsible for that one, at least not based on what you've seen as evidence so far.
3: Yeah, so I've been conducting war crimes investigations of airstrikes for the last 20 years. And what I see in the images and video that have come out of Gaza is just not consistent with an airstrike, right? You don't see, for example, a large crater. The JDAMs that Israel uses, the crater size can be anywhere from three meters to maybe upwards of 10 meters, depending on which version that they're using. So you don't see that crater. Additionally, you see a lot of thermal or fire damage, right, from the big fireball that that hit initially. And you don't really see that kind of damage from the blast and fragmentation weapons that we typically see Israel dropping in Gaza. And so trying to look at that, one, I think it's very easy for us now to say, hey, that was not an Israeli airstrike. And then it becomes the question of what was it?
0: So far, at least, it doesn't appear there's been calls, but it doesn't appear that the kind of investigation you would like to carry it, I suspect, is in the offing at this point.
3: No, I think that Israel's what they've put forward uh, as a concept of it being a, a rocket that failed on its way out of Gaza over towards Israel and then came down is a plausible one. Right. You see a lot of fire damage and a rocket having just launched is filled with fuel But really, unless you have investigators go to the site and pull out pieces of the weapon, you're really not going to know for certain exactly what it was. You need to have that kind of forensic evidence from the site, which is the kind of typical thing that you see the U.N. do in a war crime investigation.
0: Take me a bit behind the scenes, if you could. What is happening right now between intelligence services right around the world, I suspect, trying to figure out what exactly happened here? Because it does appear to be so critical, uh, a really critical juncture in this conflict, given the reaction from a lot of uh, other states, for instance, the cancellation of Joe Biden's meeting in Amman being one of the things that has happened almost right away after this explosion.
3: Well, I think we really need to be mostly concerned with the civilians at this point, whether those civilians are Israelis who have been captured by Hamas and are are currently captives, or if they're Palestinians that are being killed in airstrikes, right? We really need to be concerned with them and get this to end as quickly as possible. If this event could be a spark for that, at least we see some silver lining in, unfortunately, a massive death of, of civilians in this context. But at this point, we see a rush to Really say, was it my guys or was it their guys, right? To, to give that kind of attribution. The Israelis very quick on putting out intelligence as, uh, as rapidly as possible. The U.S. trying to, to back that up. From my perspective, I'm not as concerned who the perpetrator is at this point. Let's get things dialed down and get peace in place. And then we can worry about doing our war crime investigations.
0: I I suspect looking at what happened over the last 24 hours, as someone who has taken the the time and done the diligence to try to figure out what exactly has happened, uh, it must take you aback to a certain extent about how quickly things spread on social media long before there are any answers.
3: Yeah. And it's really much more complicated in this in this instance. You know, I look at the Ukrainian conflict and we've seen a, a lot of disinformation there. But this one right now is just on a whole nother level, and it becomes very difficult for war crimes investigators to know what is real and what isn't real. You know, when videos are put out so rapidly, when people are able to share lies instantaneously and get thousands, if not millions of views, it greatly complicates the work. And you have to remember, when I go to a site to conduct an investigation oftentimes that's cued by something that has been released in the media or on social media. And so if those cues that are coming to you are lies, it's going to greatly complicate the work that you're doing.
0: How do you sift through those? I guess that's what I was trying to ask earlier, about what's going on behind the scenes in terms of of, of people trying to come up with some sort of explanation for what happened yesterday?
3: You take your time, you check your facts, you work through multiple different types of information. You don't rely on single sources. You really have to just do your due diligence, just like you as a reporter, I'm sure. In these instances, you know, war crimes investigations, we're talking about sending someone to prison, you know, for life, potentially. Uh, You know, there was a case that I worked on, a universal jurisdiction case where Syrian was taken in Germany and, and now he's in prison. When you're talking about raising something to that level, you have to make sure that you are absolutely correct.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that struck me is so much. I mean, you talked about Ukraine and there's been other, you know, Syria. There's now, now, uh, Gaza and Israel about the rules of engagement, the rules of war and, and how important they were as we came out of the second world war to, to establish rules of conflict. And it feels like those rules are increasingly being ignored. And I wonder from where you sit, uh, that must be even more, that must be even more damning from where you sit.
3: Well, when it really comes down to it the basic rule of of war right now is that you can't directly target civilians, right? That is just the absolute lowest bar that we can possibly have. And yet we look at Ukraine, for example, and the Russians are on a daily basis targeting the civilians in, in Ukraine. And so it's it's really disheartening, even though we have all of these, you know, rules, tactics, techniques, and procedures, rules of engagement for military, that many times they're ignored. And sometimes, you know, even when you have good actors they like to get their feet right up against the paint and do as much as they possibly can
0: mark thank you so much
3: hey thanks a lot
0: we move on now to a subject that well you know we talk about things like food on the show because i find it interesting i have to tell you my mom was a consumer reporter growing up so i've always loved consumer reports and stories and she was also pretty harsh with the diet Uh, when I was young I did not get to touch sugar at all (laughs) there was no sugar in my house or no sugary cereals so occasionally I'd go to my grandmother's place and I'd sit down and we didn't have cable either and I'd watch Saturday morning cartoons for hours on end and gorge myself on count chocula apple jacks you name it whatever was there I love that stuff Um, You know, that was probably my first experience with what we call ultra-processed foods. Um, We probably all ate something ultra-processed today. I grabbed a few cookies on my way out of the house this afternoon. In fact, almost 46% of us here in Canada, our total daily calories are made up of ultra-processed food. That, according to StatsCan, back in 2015. So it's been a while. Uh, The report shows that kids and youth uh, were also the highest consumers at more than 50% of their diets made up of so-called UPFs. You may remember that last week we had doctor and author Chris Van Tulikan on the show to talk about his book called Ultra Processed People, which is about this topic. Here's a snippet of that one.
2: It is all around us and it makes up, whether you're in the UK or Canada, it makes up 60% of the calories that we eat. If you've got a teenager, it could well be 80 or 90%. Uh, you know, the research probably underestimates the amount we eat, but this is this is our food culture. In, in North America and the UK, this is what we eat.
0: Chris Van in his book is called uh, Ultra Processed People. It's a fascinating read. Uh, and while we know they aren't very good for us, right? Like we get that. Things like, even if there are health claims on them, like low fat or whatever, um, you know, that things like sugary drinks and potato chips, ready-made meals, you name it, aren't very good for us. But are they actually addictive? A new study finds that UPFs can cause withdrawal symptoms similar to people trying to to Quit Smoking, published last Tuesday. it finds uh, It's in the British Medical Journal, by the way. It found that addiction to ultra-processed foods was, affects 14% of adults and 12% of kids around the world. So what should we do about it? How did they determine that? And what should we do about it? Ashley Gerhardt is a professor of psychology in the clinical science area at the University of Michigan. She was also lead author of said study, and she joins me now. Ashley, thank you.
5: Um, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: We were talking a bit about uh, UPFs last week with Chris Van Tuleken, who's written this great book on it called Ultra Processed People. And that just a few days, a day before that, this study came out. I suppose it's always important to remind listeners exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about ultra processed foods, because it can be a little bit confusing. I mean, a lot of food is processed, right? But yeah. not all food is ultra processed.
5: Yeah, And that's exactly right. So Ultra-processing is kind of the altering of food taken to the extreme. We smush it, we emulsify it, we extract it, we essentially take food so it no longer resembles what it looks like in nature and through industrial processes is kind of Frankenstein put back together into something that's often designed to be hyper-palatable, unnaturally rewarding and designed to make it hard to stop eating, even if you know you should.
0: That sounds like many other products that are sort of out there to be sold, right? I mean, this isn't necessarily about right. nutrition. It's about sales.
5: Uh, th- that's absolutely right. And you know, something that has become really salient to me more over just the last few years is how much... Big tobacco and big food are kind of one in the same for much of our modern history uh, that from about the 1980s through the early 2000s, RJ Reynolds and Philip Morris, the biggest kind of tobacco producers, bought up food companies and they actually became the biggest producers of ultra processed food. And there's evidence that just came out recently that the tobacco companies, when they came into the food world, they reshaped it. They really took their kind of know-how and how to make nicotine an irresistible, addictive product and took that uh, our research and development strategies and the kind of marketing approaches and used it in their food portfolios to all of our detriments.
0: I'm sure big food, big food will take will object to that, of course, as as they might. Yes. But you've actually gone out and and looked into this. You sort of looked through a bunch yeah. of different research that was done and came up with some pretty some pretty sobering findings, to be honest.
5: Yeah. Yes. So, you know, when we look at the core criteria for addiction, like if we think, man, have these products been altered and changed so much that maybe they do really look more like an addictive drug like tobacco? Like, how would we know that? And, you know, some of the work that we review finds that when you look at the brain, the kind of core reward motivation center of the brain is called the striatum and nicotine and alcohol lead to this spike of dopamine in the striatum, about 150 to 200% above baseline. What we're seeing is that sugar, fat, ultra processed foods can really trigger that core addiction brain region to the same magnitude. Um, Cravings for these sorts of foods, craving for drugs, they're so similar in the brain, you really can't tell them apart. They really activate the same circuitry in the brain. And when we look at, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I diagnose people um, with addictive disorders to try and help them get care is, you know, it, most people use an addictive substance at some point in their life, you know, 90% of people drink alcohol, uh, but for a subset, it can really start to take on a life of its own because it's so powerful in the way it's, it's designed to be rewarding. And about 14% of people will develop an alcohol use disorder an addiction to alcohol When we we apply those same criteria we'd use to diagnose an alcohol addiction, but to the intake of these ultra-processed foods, we see that it's about 14% of adults and 12% of children would have a clinically significant addiction to these sorts of highly rewarding ultra-processed foods. And that is really, really concerning given the current level of diet-related disease and suffering that comes surrounding these products.
0: And, and you came up with some pretty, um, some pretty damning examples as well, sort of individual examples of people uh, exhibiting ad- the kind of behavior that one could only look at and say, well, that's addictive.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, we, we've been working on some papers in my lab where we've been having people come in who actually don't have enough money to get food. You know, they're um, struggling with financial resources and we've had people come in and say, you know, I'll have food at home. I'll have beans and fruits and veggies. Mm-hmm. But even though I I know I can't afford it, all I can think about is wanting Doritos and potato chips and soda, and I'll drive way out of my way to go get those foods to satisfy my craving. And I might know that I have diabetes and this is uncontrolled and I shouldn't have one donut, let alone a whole box, but I can't help myself, even though uh, it's just so irresistible to me that I can't stop myself, even though I know this could kill me. And when I think back to, you know, tobacco, we really debated for decades whether tobacco could really be addictive. I mean, you're not going to overdose on tobacco. It's legal. You're not intoxicated or high on it. But it's the most deadly addictive drug we have. It kills the most people every year globally due to chronic health related conditions associated with it. And when I hear that, you know, that's kind of what was convincing us with cigarettes is that people would say, I know I have lung cancer. I know I have emphysema. I want to quit smoking and I just can't. And I hear that all the time when it comes to these sorts of ultra processed foods.
0: Yeah. And the whole notion about, you know, well, why don't you just have one cigarette and stop, right? Yeah, totally. That's what we tell people when it comes to things like donuts, like just have one.
5: Absolutely. And, you know, I've had people who've actually... Come into our lab. Who said, "Oh, I, I, I was a smoker. I had an alcohol addiction, and it was actually, you know, when I quit alcohol or I quit cocaine, I, I kind of transferred it to these foods." And I have right. to tell you that the, the ultra processed food is harder because you know we all have to eat, so we have to engage with our food environment. And now, you know, in North America, we're like fifty to sixty percent of our calories are ultra processed foods. If you're poor, that's even more of what you're being put towards all the time. And so it takes a lot of effort to eat healthy. And that is striking when these foods are already engineered to grab your attention, to make you want them, to make them hard to resist. It's really setting people up to fail.
0: Ashley, when we look at what could be done, I I think labeling is one thing that we've certainly was fought. I mean, we're still fighting about labeling and alcohol these days, Yeah. Uh, but but is that something that, that you think would be a good first step? And what do you label?
5: I, You know, I do. I do think it's important for us to have clear communication about these sorts of unnaturally rewarding ultra processed foods. Uh, I do think it's a tricky question that scientists are currently trying to tackle. What's the best way to really set those boundaries? But I think we have to equip people with clear, obvious labels because so much ultra processed food has health claims all over it. You know, it's uh, my favorite is Swedish fish. There's like, it's just red sugar. That's going to has low fat food on it. (laughs) It's like, I'm a food scientist. I go to the grocery and I feel like my mind is boggled by the time I leave because the amount of claims that are on these foods that don't exist in nature. I mean, we, we, we have a better sense of what's nutritious and nourishing and sustains us of real foods like fruits and veggies and legumes and meats and, and dairies and things like that. And these sorts of products are are so hard for us to kind of realize that they're really not serving us when they come just packaged with health claims. So we really need scientific health-driven ways that consumers can inform themselves. And I'm a mom of two young kids. I think that's particularly true uh, for parents being able to make the choices for their children that are best, because we're really seeing artificial sweeteners start to flood into children's products in ways that are kind of hidden, and I don't think a lot of parents know that you know some of the ultra-processed foods that have health claims are actually jacked up pretty high with artificial sweeteners too. Well,
0: yeah. What are some of those foods? Because again, uh, you know, the, yeah. the comment always is if it makes a health claim, it's probably ultra-processed, yes, right? Because apples very don't true. need you don't need don't need to put an health, health claim on an apple, right? Oh um, yeah. man. Uh,
5: yeah exactly you're so right you know yogurt i find like all these like some of these yogurts out there that they're really just ice cream you know but like yogurt has a health halo but some of them have as much sugar as ice cream and all the stir and all of that Um, i think a lot of bars like granola bars protein bars energy replacement bars um, are essentially like candy bars with a little bit more protein in them and so you know uh, we see that, that you know we really love Jamming protein and jamming fiber. But you know, some of the things that I think with ultra processed foods that. It's not just the levels of sugars and fats, but the way what we call the food matrix is broken down. So these foods are, I kind of think of as pre-digested, pre-chewed for us, Mm -hmm. Um, the fiber, the water, the protein, the structure is broken down. So if you think of eating like a bushel of bananas, like you'd get full, that would not be appealing, but you can get that same amount of sugar and a handful of candy that just melts in your mouth, gets digested rapidly, is more available to the body, available to the brain in a way that we just don't see with real food.
0: Yeah. I mean, it appeals to so much of, it it appeals to us because it's so easy to eat and it does bring a certain amount of pleasure. Although as it's been mentioned numerous times, one of the big problems with it is it doesn't set off those, as you just mentioned, it doesn't set off those warning signals that you're full, that you've had enough.
5: A hundred percent. And satiety signals in our gut have a direct communication system up to the reward center of the brain. And so when you're really full, your brain this reward system is less reactive, not only to ultra processed foods, but actually drugs like nicotine and cocaine and alcohol. They yeah. all use that same reward system. And so when we, right now we're seeing that some of those new weight loss, um, injectables, the GLP one agonist, they actually slow down the absorption of food into the system. And they seem to make us feel way more satiated. There's actually evidence that those drugs might actually be effective treatments for substance addiction too, to things like alcohol, so the the overlap between these systems and our body, our gut, and our brain. I mean, they evolved to help us survive and get enough calories to to thrive. And our industrial food complex has gotten so good at messing around with the food that it uses our biology against us.
0: Any any caveats here for those who are heading to their cupboard right now to throw away <laughs> a box yeah, of cookies, so, and good ol' you know, bar, I think breakfast cereal the, they own?
5: It's so true, like. The goal is not perfection right i can I've seen people kind of go the other way. I really think of it as it's more of a common sense balancing that you want you know the base, the foundation of what you're eating and your day to day life to be real food to be you know brown rice and some chicken breast and some veg, and you need to like that stuff. Try to make your your base, your foundation real nourishing food, and that's going to make you less vulnerable to the reward impact of these ultra-processed foods when you're more nourished from real food.
0: Well, Ashley, thank you so much.
5: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: This next story is not about a turtle. That song is about a turtle. But I couldn't find a song about a tortoise. So a turtle it is. Uh, With a name like Frank the Tank, and that's what this turtle has now been called. Um, You know, this is the name that he now has. He was found, believe it or not, this is a turtle tortoise that you normally find in the Sahara Desert. That's where they're from originally. A a Salcata tortoise, I believe they're called. Uh, An exotic one. But it was found wandering in a field. In Richmond, B.C., a bok choy field, I believe. And uh, how did it get there? Who found him? And what's happened to him now? Uh, And again, he's got this name, Frank the Tank. 35 pounds when he was found. Apparently, he'll grow to be much, much bigger. 150 years is their lifespan. And so what was it doing there? And how did they people come upon it? Shelly Smith was uh, the first to spot Frank, or one of the first to spot Frank, uh, in that field near her house in Richmond a couple of weeks ago, and she joins me now. Shelley, thank you so much. Oh, you're more than welcome. What a story! What, I mean, yeah. <laughs> what a story! Uh, I had never—I mean, I could picture what this tortoise may look like, but what a absolutely unexpected spot to spot something like this. What happened? Oh, yeah,
1: he was awesome. Initially, I—I uh, I thought it was a rock. And even that's weird. I mean, I walk the dogs in this field. I have two German Shepherds, but I'm also a dog walker and a dog trainer. And I walk client dogs in this field, around the field, seven days a week. Right. Um, and there's not a rock there. And I thought, hmm, that's weird. <laughs> um, it literally was 150, 250, uh, 150 to 200 feet from my back door. So I was like looking right at it. And I, I saw it earlier, uh, probably about half an hour earlier. And I thought, that's a strange place for a rock, which has never been. There And then I was out in my yard, and I looked again, and I was like, hey, wait a minute, that rock is moving ever so slightly. Um, I wear glasses, and I actually thought, geez, maybe I need a prescription, I need a stronger prescription, because my eyes are blurry, because that's how slow he was moving. And I didn't really think that much of it. But a few minutes later, there's a lot of construction going on on my street, Gilbert, And uh, I noticed that the crews, a number of the guys from the the crew, were standing in the field and pointing at something, and they were approaching. And I thought, okay, yeah, that rock is still slowly moving. I'm going to go investigate. And they walked up, and lo and behold, um, here's this huge. I thought it was a turtle. I don't I don't know the difference between tortoises and turtles. And I I was like, wow, how did you get here, buddy? Uh, He was awesome, though. We named him Teddy. Uh, Teddy right. the turtle, and uh, right away I studied the turtle, and a couple of the workmen were there, and as we were chatting about him and what to do with him and how did he arrive here, the, uh, the tortoise was Look, looking up at us like he was listening in on our our conversation he'd stopped walking he wasn't <laughs> hidden his head was not retracted and really? you know when I was yeah it was he it was awesome when I was talking to him he was just sort of looking at me and then he looked over at the other guy and I said to one of the workmen and he was funny he was an Irishman and I said do you think it's a boy or a girl and he looked at <laughs> it really seriously and said aye it's a laddie and I said, "How do you know?" And he said, "He said it's a laddie lassie." Hmm? And I said, oh, "Okay." Um, and uh, I got down. I petted his feet. His back feet were looked like those of an elephant. Like they didn't have any claws? Yeah, they're, or they're big. Massive. They're big. Those oh, tortoises. I mean, I've seen. Was, yeah, I've seen them in
0: zoos. They're massive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He was amazing, though. So he was super gentle. I mean, I petted him. I was quite surprised at how soft his feet were. Uh, really soft. I mean, they look like they'd be scaly and hard, but they're actually very soft. And uh, so I said to the guys, I was like, "Well, we can't leave them here. This is this is not a you know an aquatic turtle. Um, <laughs> this is Niffle. somebody's pet." And then we sort of joked. You know, I said, "I wonder if he ran away from home." And we laughed about the terminology "ran away," right? Because <laughs> I mean, he was moving at a snail's pace or a tortoise's pace. Yes. And I I jokingly said to one of the guys, I said. You know, maybe he ran away. Ran away. Maybe he ran away from home like two years ago, and you know, he's only made it to Gilbert from Two <laughs> Road. Li-
0: and he lives on your street. I know exactly. And yeah. he was in sort of a field full of. I, I gather there's yeah, it's been I've seen different. and bok choy. Or, I, Both. Okay, it's both. Yeah, I, it was I right in the I middle, he straddling
1: out. the two crops.
0: Wow. And uh, <laughs> was, was, so he, was he just he was just sort of just just ambling away, like quietly yeah. walking along, not stopping and eating. Kind of, g- but, but
1: when we were all there, he just stopped mm-hmm. and was looking up at us. And uh, so I called the SPCA, and I'm a dog trainer in Richmond, mm-hmm. and I deal with, and at dog walkers. I said, and I deal with the SPCA. I'm on good terms with them. So I called, and it just happened to be the James, who I talk to all the time at the SPCA, right. and uh, I called him. I actually found a turtle last summer in the middle of the road, and it was an actual turtle, and it was it's called a red slider. And uh, he said, it's just, you know, they're they're in the ditches here. Just let it be. So so I called him, and I said, I found another turtle. And he was like, oh, okay. Um, is it a red slider? And I said, no, no, it's not a red slider. And he said, well, is it the size? Because the other one was the size of a small, um, you know, side plate. Yeah. And he said, is was it the size of a side plate? And Thanksgiving was just – this was on a Wednesday. It was two weeks ago today. Thanksgiving was just around the corner. And I said, well, with well, Thanksgiving coming up, James – uh, picture, you are cooking a turkey for 24 family members and you need to put that giant turkey on a giant platter. And he said, yeah. And I said, that's <laughs> I, I, I the hope size. Teddy wasn't
0: listening. I hope Teddy yeah. wasn't listing. I listening. said, that's
1: the size. I said, my platter, my serving platter is smaller than this turtle. And he said, sweetheart, you don't have a turtle. You've got a tortoise. Wow. And I, I looked at <laughs> the guys and I said, he's a tortoise, Teddy, the tortoise. Even and, better. Uh, Yeah. So I said to him, well, can you, you know, send somebody out? And he said, yeah. And the guy said to go back to work. And I was like, hold on. Can somebody help me? And the (laughs) irony is not lost with me. I have a Mr. Turtle pool for my German shepherd that they can splash in in the summer. And it's already been emptied out for the winter. I went and got it and uh, got one of the guys to carry Frank, uh, then Teddy, to the Mr. Turtle pool and put him in the was pool. Was Teddy okay and,
0: with sort of being picked up and handled? Yeah. and it Really? Well, yeah. Because he he's 35 pounds, snap. right? He's not small. He's
1: I not went small. to pick him up, and then I was like, oh, I've got a bad back. I'm like, I don't think I can. And one of the workmen, and he was a big guy, he picked him up, and he said, wow, there's some substance to this turtle. And I said, remember, it's a tortoise. <laughs> and anyways, they carried them into my driveway. And... Uh, Put him in the Mr. Turtle pool, <laughs> and uh, the SBCA was going to come collect him. I had to go off to class, so I took a photo of him and sent it to the SBCA. Just, you know, you know, now you know where he is. He's in this, you know, dried up pool. There's no water or anything in my driveway. And when I came home from class, he was gone. Oh,
0: I, I, I imagine you might have quickly glanced across the street or, or, or out your back door to see if he if hadn't made a run, taken a runner again as, as he had it the first time.
1: Well, I asked the guy at the SBCA, I said I told him the height and the dimension. He said, "No, no, he can't get up. They don't jump." And I was like, "Oh, right. okay." Well, dogs, <laughs> I know. Tortoises, not so much.
0: Yeah, yeah. He was I guess happy I can. Just sit there.
1: Yeah, I guess I can add that to my resume. Now that you know, now I'm a tortoise wrangler.
0: You are indeed. And and tortoises have, I had to, this is from Wikipedia, by the way, (laughs) tortoises have more rounded and domed shells. Turtles have thinner, more water dynamic shells because, of course, they're streamlined to swim, uh, whereas
1: tortoises have the same It was absolutely amazing. I mean, his shell, everything about him was, was, it was kind of prehistoric. He was just super cool. If I had the, you know, the surroundings to look after him, I I think I'd prove it. Pretty much like one of these guys as a pet, but it, it just wouldn't work for me. My two German yes. shepherds. No, was, I mean,
0: they they live to be 150. I mean, that's the lifespan. <laughs> that's a, you mm-hmm. have to do some legacy planning to own to own uh, a sulcata tortoise.
1: Yeah, I googled uh, it as well, and uh, so they can get to be the size of a wheelbarrow. <laughs> yeah,
0: he was he, he was he was small at this point. Uh, Frank or Teddy w- was pretty was was not fully grown yet. Obviously, no. Uh,
1: I, I followed. How this all started was the you know, SBCA picked him up and I had no further conversation with them but I followed Doctor Adrian Walton on Facebook mm-hmm. um, who has Judney Animal Hospital and he did Whose Pet is this anyways? Here's this tortoise that was found in Richmond. And so all these people were making comments, wonder where he was found, and I just put on the comments, I found him. Huh. I found right. him in Richmond on yeah, Gilbert.
0: It's and, and, and I guess from there, I mean, he has been, he wasn't in perfect shape, right? There was, uh, I, I guess, you know, he you looked a bit perfect, TLC. Though, too, right. like, okay. The
1: untrained eye, um, not being a veterinarian, mm. he, there was, he, I didn't see any cuts or open wounds. His shell didn't look damaged at all. Um, so, but I mean, they said he had a bit of a respiratory Issue and there was a bit of uh shell rot or something like that, but i didn't right. again i'm not a veterinarian, so uh and you know so I don't know, but he he looks he looks amazing
0: and yeah. with all this I mean we know that i mean I'm sure you looked this up just like I did yeah. online you know that part of the of course they're from the Sahara part of they're endangered, part of the reason is that they're often uh you know many are taken from the wild for the pet trade it's illegal to bring either the tortoise or the egg into this country without a permit. So I guess it's somebody's. It belonged to so. Obviously, it didn't walk here, right? It belongs yeah. to somebody. And, and I suppose that
1: person hasn't come forward, or, or it won't. No. Honestly, this is my working theory, but I'm pretty sure he was dumped because... Yeah. I, again, I walked that field seven days a week. My shepherds, if there's anything new in the field, like the farmer was doing a bit of work, and he left an orange cone, and both of my shepherds were like, "What is that?" Right. You know they were barking, they were looking at it, and he was big enough, he was overgrown, you know he he was too mu too big that you would not have been able to see him and I walked that field seven days a week. It was very wow. close to the road, he was like thirty feet from the road. Uh, maybe 50 feet from the road. So uh, I'm pretty sure he was dumped because had he come from um, you know, the other end, had he come from the west side and come through the field, I would have seen him. I mean, I'm in the yeah. field every single day. My shepherds would have seen him. So I, there's no way he walked across. Well, there could be, I guess. But the fact that I couldn't, again, it's a spinach and not a tall plant. Neither are bok choy. This yeah. thing was huge. I would have seen him. And My shepherd certainly would have seen him, so I can't see him coming from Number Two Road, coming no. from the west side. He and,
0: and someone—he's so big that chances are, if he had, if he had been wandering about, someone probably would have spotted it at some point before he, before he made it into the field. Because maybe not. So you, just, you just assume some, maybe not, but you assume someone just dropped him off in the field and took off.
1: I think so. Um, and yeah. the only reason why I say that is there's been—I've lived in this house for twelve years. There's no other. Um, homes. It's just all farmland. So he would have had to come from number two road. And I don't know how he could have done that because there are ditches between each farm. So okay. how would he have been able to go right. down the ditch, across, and up?
0: And they're not it's climbers, impossible. as you mentioned, right? No, they're not great yeah. climbers, at least, with the pool and so on. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Do you have any idea of what's – I gather, I mean, just from reading the articles, and I'm sure you've been following along at the same time, but that uh, the SPCA are going to put him up for adoption if he's healthy, yeah. but it comes with comes with some caveats. I mean, this is going to be a very – it was 35 pounds. Now it could grow up to five times, four or five Good times really Yeah, Just huge. Wow, that's – I mean, it is a remarkable story. I'm, I'm – I'm glad that everything worked out. I mean, at least you knew you had those contacts at the SPCA so you could call quickly, and, and it was all taken care of quickly. What, what a story you have to tell, though. First, that little turtle, and now th- now this. Now Frank the Tank, as they're calling him.
1: I know. He was awesome, though. I mean, he really he was such a neat animal that when we, again, I can't stress this enough. When we were talking, he was just like looking from person to person, you know, and I was like, I'll help you, buddy.
0: They're so ancient. Yeah. They're it so ancient. They're so ancient. I mean, it's like looking, in, looking into, looking into the past, into the ancient past, to the distant, yeah. distant past. Prehistoric. Yeah. Incredible. Yep. Well, Shelley, I'm so glad. I, I, thanks. I'm glad that I'm, in Teddy's case, I guess we can call him Teddy. I'm glad you're the one who bumped into him or spotted him as he was making his uh, making for the making the exit that he was trying to make. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your story today. We'll look forward to yeah, seeing what happens to him. Uh, yeah,
1: for sure. If anybody wants to see a photo of him, I've got a pretty good photo of him sitting in the spinach on my Instagram <laughs> at Dog Trainer Shelley. Dr. Can,
0: Shelley, I, yeah. I'll have to have a look at him sitting in the spinach. You're right. It's not a very tall plant, and he's yeah. a, a big animal. He's a big tortoise.
1: Yeah, he was awesome. I hope some, whoever takes him, apparently there's a lot of interest, but I hope whoever takes him looks after him because he was just, he was he was neat. Yeah. He was really and, neat.
0: And and he probably belonged to somebody out there, right? Someone yeah. Someone out there. Someone will know. Someone will know at some point, but I guess it's all, that's all in the past. Now, Shelley, thank you so
1: much. You're welcome. Take care.